We made this. Welcome back, everyone, to a podcast devoted to the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm your host, Tony Black. I'm Sean Wilson. And in our latest episode of this new rebooted second incarnation of Between the Notes, we'll be presenting music from and discussing the work of Nicholas Brittell, John Powell, Patrick Doyle and more. Plus, we'll continue our two-part countdown of our best scores of 2018, which began in the previous episode, which, of course, you've listened to. Of course they've listened to it, Sean. Of course you they know. have. <laughs> Fine music and even finer chat. <laughs> <What do you laughs> <say? laughs> that's, our, that's, our, that's our tagline. There you go, that's right our... there, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're going to stop chatting now and play you some music and kick off with um, a piece from John Powell's score to the epic animated adventure How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. Legend has it, slash cliffside playtime from How to Train Your Dragon, um, The Hidden World, John Powell's newest score, and it's the third in a series of How to Train Your Dragon films scored by John Powell. Um, and again, I mean, he's going he's to come up later, Sean, I think, in terms of, um, you know, discussion in our top 10 of 2018, but we're both big fans of John Powell. It's great when he um, brings uh, his talents to the table. This is his first big score of 2019, so... How do you feel it holds up? I think it holds up magnificently well. I think it concludes what is one of the finest animation trilogy scores of recent years. I, I, I don't think, you know, you'd, have, you'd be hard-pressed to find soundtrack fans who don't like the How to Train Your Dragon scores. Um, they're really full-blooded, full-throated, sweeping extravaganzas with really great themes, you know, lovely celtic instrumentation interestingly that sinks to the background in in the third one and i think that you know john powell has got poured so much heart into these scores he clearly cares so very deeply about the two central characters the viking hiccup who you know started as a 
sort of young whelp and has now sort of turned into this you know really sort of tactical leader and his sort of dragon friend toothless pal so clearly is so clearly invested in that you can hear that resonate through every note of the music and from the tentative beginnings in the first one through to the you know burgeoning heroism of the second one and now you get the tear-jerking resolution i won't give it away for those who haven't seen the film have have you seen the film confession time i haven't seen any of them you haven't seen any of them oh wow okay right i know and it's a lot of people have said what you haven't seen i mean my wife keeps saying to me we need you know watch how to train your dragon yeah absolutely for some reason animation never seems to be top of my list of things i want to do but no i do need to sit down and do this trilogy especially having gone back and listened to some of pal's work on some of these earlier films because it, it is it is really good it is really nice it's a tremendous score i mean the films are family friendly but they're not cutesy i mean there there, there is there is real maturity in the um films which helps the scores gain this sort of robust sense of dramatic weight you don't get a sense that they're kind of mickey mousing around the edges although there are plenty of humorous touches in the score as well but actually i think my favorite new theme from the hidden world involves the the, the love theme between Toothless, who's a Night Fury dragon, and then his Light Fury counterpart, who he falls head over tail for, um, and those are some of like the funniest scenes in the in the film. And you've got this lovely, exuberant, rapturous, like tongue in cheek sense of romance that underscores the central relationship between the two of them, because each of those dragons thought they were the only species that were left, and now they form this unexpected bond together, and the music gets the ecstatic sense of happiness and joy through that which starts starts with some lovely kind of sort of orchestral flirting material as toothless goes through his <laughs> kind of like mating dance ritual um at sort of hiccups behest um which is very very funny and again the music gets the humor of that but it also gets the sort of dramatic seriousness of the situation as well and it's it's absolutely beautiful um i i believe that there, there's a there's a track later on called night furies in love i think it is called and which is just breathtakingly gorgeous i mean the interesting thing about this score is that clearly this film is purported to be the final in the trilogy and therefore both the music and the film have to wrap everything up and what you get is a a sense of more melancholia um more romantic kind of weight um there there is not only the romance between the dragons but also between toothless and astrid voiced by america ferrera which has kind of been blossoming across the three films so you get that that the music is invested with a greater sense of of romantic maturity this time around and again the celtic stuff which defined the first two cores kind of spills to the background now because that's all kind of been done you powell doesn't need to labor that anymore now it becomes entirely about the characters rather than about the setting itself although there is a new hidden world um theme which um he he collaborated with uh john z from uh, cigaros on and um john z has done um material for earlier in the series as well yeah i i think powell is a is a magnificent composer and i, I interviewed him actually about 18 months ago as prior to the release of um solo um he's a lovely man and very candid and very funny um and very frank about why he likes scoring movies like this See, he, he he almost makes it his mission to exclusively score family-friendly adventure films like this because he says that they morally they sit 
well with him, whereas he doesn't. He 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 now has a, a moral problem with scoring Hollywood action movies that use violence as a crutch. Whereas obviously House Trainer Dragon doesn't do that. It's got a lot of very important things to say to its audience, and I think that comes across in the music. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think this is a, a tremendously powerful score. I suppose as well, there's an argument that you can with with a, with a with a piece of work like this, you can really sort of tap into all kinds of different things that you couldn't do you know if you're scoring a Bourne movie you know or you couldn't do if you're scoring uh, I don't know something like Mr and Mrs Smith which you did before you know you can really with with something as as sweeping as animation and and all these different worlds and this magical aspect you can really go to places as a composer I suppose and, and I suppose that's you know that's the same thing and we'll talk more about it later but that's similar to what he does in Solo you know it's that sense that he can really go and and explore all these different ideas in these different areas so it, it, it must be more rewarding really yeah and, and also the fact that you know this is the third part of a trilogy and he can build on what's come before he can take the the, the seed of, of an idea that maybe began in in the first movie and, and he can allow it to flourish and he can allow it to grow and sort of reach sort of new instrumental nuances and new ways of of expressing itself i mean the amount of um, the brilliant one of the brilliant things about the score for the hidden world is the myriad of themes that it incorporates from the first two scores. You've got the um, the this is Burke theme, which describes the Viking village. You've got the test flight theme, which in the first film cemented the bond between Hiccup and Toothless. That appears a lot in the hidden world, but it sounds it sounds kind of different. The tone of it is slightly different, befitting where the characters now are in the series. There's a myriad of other themes that also come in as well. So it's a really consistent musical trilogy. Like all of the ideas are shared very, very well across each of the each of the three scores. And um what that does is that compounds the sense of poignancy when you get to the end of the hidden world score you do genuinely think oh wow i've actually come to an end of a journey with these characters you know not just th- from through the film but also through the music as well because john powell is such an Im- he, he is the heartbeat of this trilogy without a doubt which great when that happens i'm looking forward to getting stuck into the the trilogy at some point you know i, I might wait till they're all out there they're all on stream and then just blast the three and then uh, I, can, I can hopefully enjoy the music a little bit more so yeah that's um how to drain your drag how to how to drain your dragon <laughs> we've been calling it we've film. been calling it that at work <laughs> how to drain your dragon <laughs> Draining a dragon, yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll see that on Game of Thrones. All, 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 you know. yeah, exactly, all the kids come out traumatised at the other end. <laughs> How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, is uh, is now available. The music for that's now available on Backlot Music, um, so do check that out. Uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really nice piece of work. Okay, we're going to move back to our... Top 10 scores of 2018. We got down to the uh, uh, first five in the previous episode between the notes, but now we're going to do our four to one scores. So in this case, we're going to do uh, scores four and scores three, and then we'll have a little break and come back and do one and two later. So, uh, Sean, kick us off this time. What is your fourth best score of 2018? I've selected Black Panther by uh, Ludwig uh, Göransson, and I I referred to this um, on the uh, previous episode, so I'll just elaborate on it so th- this is the first marvel cinematic universe score to be oscar nominated in fact it's the first superhero score to be nominated since john williams's superman back in 1978 so let's let that sink in for a moment no superhero score since since uh, since then um has been um 
Oscar nominated Black Black Panther is the first since then to be Oscar nominated. It's quite remarkable when you consider the genre high points that have been hit. You think of Danny Elfman's Batman scores, you think of Jerry Goldsmith's The Shadow, you think of the other Marvel Cinematic Universe scores, and, and I don't have it hold any truck with people who say that there have been no memorable scores in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it's rubbish. There have been plenty of them. You think of Alan Silvestri's work on Captain America, the first Avenger and the Avengers movies. You think particularly of Christoph Beck with Ant-Man, which had that very sly caper feel to it. There have been lots of great scores within this franchise, albeit the thematic continuity between the music isn't best shared between all of the different films. You know, there are lots of themes that get shuffled around and then dropped and then maybe erratically used later on that that criticism i can understand um, but that's what happens when you get lots of different composers scoring all these different films i think the score for black panther is the best one so far because i think it holds considerable dramatic weight and the variety of the soundscape is really quite remarkable what you've got is this meeting point between the the needs of the western symphony orchestra which is of course part of the course in a superior score you need to have that kind of sense of weighty heroism in order to make the thing work but what uh, it meets this kind of uh, Senegalese instrumentation which Ludwig Göransson studied in Africa he went over to Africa he went to Senegal he worked with musicians he he went on tour with Baba Mal who's a very very esteemed Senegalese vocalist I believe did he work with David Bowie I think I think Baba Mal might have, might have worked with David Bowie at one point and what you get is this extraordinary fusion between two very very different musical styles which is sort of this western symphony harmonious approach and then Senegalese instrumentation which is more about rhythm and counter rhythm and how do these two things come together and it's a it's very very difficult thing to pull off they're two very different musical styles and I think it works brilliantly it gives the Wakandan landscape, a really distinctive character, and it pulls you into the movie dramatically. And I think there are the themes are really, really great. You've got the um, the theme for T'Challa, Chadwick Boseman, which is done on what's called the talking drum, which meant to, it's meant to spell out it spells out his name through the the rhythm of the notes, and then. You've also got the theme for Killmonger, Michael B. Jordan, um, the villain, which is this kind of trap hip-hop meets kind of ethnic mix there's so much going on in this score and it's it's really really well done it's really well thought through and i think hopefully what it what it will do is it'll inspire um future scores within the mcu to become ever more creative because clearly they can it it can be done and i'm delighted it's got oscar nominated i think it really deserves it absolutely i I agree with all of that and i'll be we'll be coming back to black panther a little bit later but i i yeah i mean are you spot on absolutely spot on it's it's a it's brilliant it's just pure brilliance i've listened to that score more i would say than anything else in the last 12 months quite honestly i really have it's it's just incredible piece of work love it love it love its bits all right so my number four is uh justin Hurwitz's first man which is obviously from the Damien Chazelle film starring Ryan Gosling about Neil Armstrong and the uh, mission, 1969 mission to the moon uh, and the run-up to it, which, funnily enough, I watched again last night, actually. I got a, a screener come through um, and I watched First Man again, second time. It's still it's still a really good film. I, I, still, I still really like it. Very insular, sort of sad, melancholic look at grief, really, with the, uh, the moon mission as sort of sort of the allegory to it and and Hurwitz's music 
obviously this is a big departure from La La Land, which was the last thing him and, he and Chazelle did, and Whiplash before that actually. And this, the music is is a real. I think one of the reasons it's kind of got overlooked a little bit, as has the movie, is because it's a real mix of different styles. So you've got some really sort of ambient and dark stuff when the uh, the spacecraft is out of control this really sort of hard to listen to almost dissonant kind of thing and then you've got stuff like the docking waltz which is this 2001 symphonic beautiful you know piece and then you've got stuff like the landing which i think the landing is one of the greatest tracks of the last year which is the when they're, they're coming to land on the moon surface it's just it's just powerful and 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 tense and exciting and moving the movie's really good, but I think the score, when it works, and a lot of the time it does work, I think he's maybe as good, if not better. Yeah, I, I think I completely agree with everything you said there, and I think it is a real shame that the movie has become the sort of bridesmaid in, in this Oscars race. I mean, it got embroiled in all that idiotic controversy over the American flag. I mean, clearly every, anyone who yeah. criticised the film on that basis didn't understand what kind of movie Chazelle and Hurwitz were making, which is, like, as you quite rightly said, it's not a movie about patriotism. It's about a man coming to terms with the grief in his past <laughs> who happens yeah. to use a, a journey in space as a conduit for that grief. Um, so those criticisms don't hold up for me at all. I think the score is brilliant. Um, I think it is it is very subdued and introspective for the most part, with the exception of the the waltz, the occasional waltz sequences. But what that does is that makes the astonishing landing cue all the more powerful at the end because of how much the score is held back before, because of how effectively it gets inside Neil Armstrong's head. Neil Armstrong is brilliantly played by Ryan Gosling. You get that cathartic sense of you know almost explosive relief at the end during that landing scene. I mean that that's an extraordinary cue. There are like echoes of John Barry and Jerry Goldsmith in in that in that track. And I, I actually, funnily enough, I, I interviewed Justin Hurwitz just recently about about this score, and he he talked about the instrumentation that was used in it and he said that one of the things that they did was they used synthesizers in the score but they only used synthesizers made prior to 1969 to give it that sense of authenticity so the music sounds like the, the period that's being you know the music is appropriate for the period that's being depicted and little, little, little touches like that I think it's inexplicable that it's not been Oscar nominated for its music, especially given that it won the Golden Globe. Uh, just <laughs> very, very strange choice. I can only assume that it, it, the music has unfortunately been dragged down into, into the controversy over the movie, which shouldn't have existed in the first place. Because I, I thought the film was terrific. I, I really, really liked it. And I think that, again, like, like you quite rightly pointed out, anyone expecting the sort of ecstatic lyrical romantic atmosphere of la la land probably came out of first man going what on earth that's that's not you know this this is much more introspective it almost approaches the feel of a documentary in places and i think that caught a lot of people off guard i think a lot of people were expecting to come out of were, were expecting to come out of this expecting a more traditional typically american flag waving experience from both the direction and the music and they didn't get it um but frankly more more full them and more power to the movie really and the music and i think it says more about the american psyche right yeah. now than it does about the movie <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah but but yeah I, I i think you're spot on i completely agree it is very introspective and then you've got things like that haunting sort of almost science fiction b movie 
thing going on, which is just great. You know, so I've deafened people there. Sorry, guys. Um, but like, you know, <laughs> there's loads of really interesting stuff in it. So it's 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 a great it's a great score. Um, and it, like you say, it does deserve more recognition than it's got, really. But um, all right. So what's your number three then? So my number three is uh, Mary Poppins Returns, which is Yay! yeah, there we go. It was in there. It's in there. Well, what to say? Uh, Mark Scheiman and lyricist Scott Whitman did a brilliant job with this in terms of living up to the Sherman Brothers legacy. Because what a what a formidable legacy the Sherman Brothers set down as a result of the first Mary Poppins movie. I mean, to even cut, go go anywhere near that is a brave thing. And I think both Scheiman and Whitman have done a fantastic job with this both in terms of the songs and also the score the score is the thing that kind of gets overlooked in this because of course everyone latches onto the songs because they're the things that grab the attention this being mary poppins Uh, well let's start with the songs first i think the songs are really great i've seen some quite tepid criticism of the songs saying they're bland they're boring you know that they're not at all i i I don't agree with that (laughs) i think they're really good fun um what's your favorite song um, I, I love can can you imagine that i think uh, interestingly when you listen to the melody of can you imagine that that appears to be the main melody of the underscore as well that because that's yeah. the moment where mary is brilliantly played by emily blunt cements the bond with the children therefore that theme then becomes her theme for her relationship with the children throughout the score and yeah I, I loved it and obviously turning turtle with meryl streep doing that really ridiculous like eastern european accent but it, perf, you know appropriately ridiculous you, know, you trip a little light fantastic um you know with the, with the Learys, and then um you know cover is not the book which goes into full vaudeville music hall territory with emily blunt changing her accent then you've got lynn manuel miranda doing the freestyling rap in the middle i think the level of intricacy and detail in the songs is really really good i think it lives up to the legacy of, of the songs from the original and it also carves out its own space. But I think the score is brilliant as well. I think the score is absolutely wonderful. I mean, it, it clearly, the, the nature of the storyline allows for some really like rip-roaring orchestral set pieces. You think of like the Race to Big Ben cue towards the end, yeah. which is really exciting. And it, it gets shows that, Sh- Sh- I mean, Shyman as a composer has been a little bit quiet over the last few years. So it was delightful to see him get this because... He's got a lovely sense of lyricism and he knows how to work an orchestra. You think of things like the American president that he was Oscar nominated for years and years ago, like 20 odd years ago. He knows how to do this. And what a fine showcase for him. Yeah, I I, 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 I love I love this. And I, I, I don't agree with anyone who says that it's it's bland and overcooked and, you know, overshadowed by the original i just say go and listen to it again yeah i I don't don't know what they're listening to i I really don't i mean i think i think everyone was a bit taken aback just how good this whole thing was you know i think everyone was a little bit like oh my god mary what mary poppins you really really gonna try and do another one of them and then we got it and you know as you said emily blunt was phenomenal in the role and and the music was just fantastic and that because that was the thing how do you possibly Match, supercalifragilistic, step in time, you know, all, all of these things, you know, um, let's go fly a kite, stuff that's been part of people's childhoods and adult life and has been in popular culture for, you know, half a century. But it's done it. I mean, I, I, I can't quite believe that. I mean, I can't quite, I, I think people will be singing The Cover Is Not The Book in 30 years. You know, I, I really do. I, I think these are songs that are going to pass on into sort of Disney legend. And, and, I think that is that is really something to pull off, and like you say, having that mark, having that underscore that Mark Shaman weaves all these 
all these nods to the actual songs and and this as you say quite rightly this theme from can you imagine that into everything is the way he does that is sublime really i mean it's it's interesting isn't it it's like people seemingly expect these songs to become classics straight away things only become classics over a certain amount of time i mean Mm. the the songs from the original mary poppins probably didn't become classics with the with the immediate release of the movie i mean mary the songs in the original mary poppins have had a chance to become classics over the course of 50 odd years (laughs) you know these you know we need to we need to allow these the ones from the new movie to grow and to sort of seep into our imagination and i think they already have to an extent but well yeah I, i i think the real test of it will be like you're saying 10 20 years time and i agree with you i think people will will be singing the numbers from this and i think what a phenomenal showcase for emily blunt as well who is so such a brilliant performer she's so versatile and she's really put through her paces in this um in terms of the singing and, and the performance and yeah really 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 top stuff great score great film okay so my number three is um we mentioned alexandre desplat in the last episode, and uh, I this is a new entry for me actually, and it's nudged things a little bit down. Isle of Dogs, which I watched recently actually, and that score I just have not been able to stop listening to for about two weeks. I, I almost it's... instinctively started tapping the table and mirroring the Tycho <laughs> drums, like <laughs> it's just yeah, yeah. and they dong 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 dong. Yeah, <laughs> it's got it's got all those. You know, he's very good at sort of splitting himself in two and being able to do all this. The kind of stuff he probably did a little bit more in the shape of water, and doing those kind of those kind of more elegant themes. But he's also very good at this. This has many shades of things like the Grand Budapest Hotel, which was another great score, and it, that playfulness and that whimsy and that. Um, in this, obviously, he really taps into a, the, 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 a Japanese stylistic touch because obviously the, the, the film is is set in sort of a fictionalized version of you know the, the Far East with with the idea of these these dogs as you know a a metaphor for any kind of race who are being subjugated and put in essentially camps and all this kind of thing there's a lot of allegory to the film but the music is just is just really great it's funny it's it's engaging it's as you said it's in your head and you're tapping your fingers to it and humming along and these kind of things and it and it really stands out it really really works as a piece outside of the movie as well and it fits the movie so well I, I as soon as i as soon as i heard this i was like this is brilliant and and i'm not surprised this has been nominated for an oscar either yeah i mean he is an oscar favorite desplar i mean obviously he won an oscar for the grand budapest hotel on you know, that on which he worked with um wes anson and clearly wes anson taps into the more eccentric side of his musical personality in which themes kind of take a back seat and it becomes more about texture and tone and just things being as off the wall as they possibly can and that alienates some people i i really enjoy it. i love the score for the grand budapest hotel i thought that was a really really like delightful little charmer yeah and this is just i mean this one the way it mixes up jazz with taiko drumming with a bit of liturgical kind of choir it's just it's 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 very very unique and i think it's no surprise that it's been oscar nominated because it again it it lends so much more character to the movie and it amplifies what is already a very very surreal setup and it already makes it more it makes it more surreal and more funny and there is something about the portentousness of Desplat's music that makes Anderson's kind of deadpan comedy even funnier I, I think that there, that there is already something inherently funny about stop motion dogs 
with these kind of like Buster Keaton like expressions, like staring into camera. It's just I find that inherently funny, and yeah. the, the the way that the music takes adds more seriousness to that it's sort of you know perversely amplifies the humor up yeah i, I think it's this you know desplar and anderson are great collaborators clearly yeah they are and and it, and it, it just it just worked everything about it worked for me so uh that's that's a late entry to my top 10 so we're going to be back for our second first and second top 10 um 2018 scores uh, in a little while so stay tuned for that <laughs> Back guys, you've been listening to uh, Love Not Ambition from uh, All Is True, Patrick Doyle's latest score in tandem with uh, director Sir Kenneth Chuckles Branner, as they call him on Wittertainment. Uh, <laughs> um, once again, both dipping their toes into the world of um, Willie Shakey, okay, uh, <laughs> Shakespeare. I'm the, I don't know if I've any, ever heard anyone call him Willie Shakey, but probably good. Not Willie Shaken uh, Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely stuff. Yeah. Um, I know you've always been a fan of, uh, of Patrick Doyle's work. Is this comparable to other collaborations uh, with Branagh, such as uh, Hamlet or I think they did they do Henry V? They, they did, yeah. yeah. That was the first they film did. that they worked on, yeah. Um, back, back when Patrick Doyle was actually an actor. Um, I think that was his debut score, actually. It was a phenomenal debut score, one of the best ever. I mean, the All Is True score is an interesting one. It's much more subdued than you might expect from Kenneth Branagh and Patrick Doyle because very often there is a kind of flowing sense of romanticism to a lot of their scores. Well, actually, the Henry V score was, was, was quite dark and toiling, uh, befitting the sort of warlike, you know, the, the themes of the of the play, um, Battle of Agincourt and so on. But they're... they're score that they've got one of the most enduring collaborations in cinema that's taken in not just Shakespeare I mean you think of the exuberance of Much Do About Nothing which is a wonderful score that's one of my favorites from them or the sort of grandiose portentous way of Hamlet or you think of the sort of churning gothic horror of Frankenstein all of these scores are very sort of front and center in terms of what they what what they want you to feel and I, I love Patrick Dawes work this one requires a little bit more work but it what it shows is that Doyle understands what's dramatically appropriate because all is true and I haven't seen this all I know is what I've read about it is that it's it's the examination of William Shakespeare as the man rather than the playwright and what happens after the Globe Theatre burns down and then he returns to his wife Anne Hathaway played by Judy Dench who's quite bitter about having been left on the sidelines while he's become this sort of esteemed literary figure and the score is very quite quiet and I think it, it, what it's doing is it's attempting to get inside the head of the man rather than the icon. And there's lots of sort of 
gentle piano and quite dirge-like strings that require a little bit of effort on the part of the listener. But I actually thought the score was, was very attractive. I thought it was very successful. There is also a um, a, a song which apparently, the, the title which is, is taken from Cymbeline, the, the Shakespeare um, play. I mean, I'm not a Shakespeare expert at all, so I, I had to uh, um, look that up in terms of where that where that was from. But no, I, I think it continues their collaboration in, in fine style, actually. And certainly anyone expecting the kind of level of um, operatic tragedy that you've got at the end of their most recent collaboration murder on the orient express you're not going to get that i found it to be pleasant but it didn't really it it needs another listen really i I think it's it's one of those that's a little bit less immediate and a little bit less obvious like you said murder on the orient express really stood out um as being a great you know rousing kind of kind of piece i really i really like the music to that and i quite enjoyed the film as well but and i haven't seen all is true yet it's just come out in the uk but it's it, it isn't an immediate grabber. It doesn't immediately strike you. And you know, like you, like you mentioned, Doyle is is playing off themes. He, he says, well, he said first the schedule was tight. I was sent the rushes every day, and composing hot on the heels of the cut. This includes two songs written to Shakespeare's words, which both feature in the screenplay "Fear No More" from Cymbeline and "I Know a Bank." from A Midsummer Night's Dream. These songs form the foundation for the thematic development of the score. It's always a privilege to have music, the opportunity to set music to William Shakespeare's words. He's been a constant inspiration to composers through the ages, and I am no exception. Now, it, that's the thing. It's, it's, I think you've got to... It might work a little bit differently with the movie, but I think you've got to work a little bit harder and maybe give it a few more listens to really pick up these sort of these aspects of the composition. Uh, so I've got to go back to it. The, the first listen, it kind of it sat there. It was, it was pleasant. It was nice. It was melodious, but it didn't, it didn't leap out at me like some of Doyle's scores have. Yeah, I, I suppose on some level as well, it's a kind of natural progression, isn't it? Because as Doyle says, Shakespeare has been in the background of his and Branagh's collaborations going way back to Henry V, and now what they're doing is they're they're tackling a fictionalised take on Shakespeare himself. So this isn't an adaptation of a play. This is about the man himself. So kind of, you know, you would have expected their partnership to have led to this point eventually. And I, I imagine some people might expect something more substantial from the score. But that, the idea is that it's meant to be subdued and somewhat introspective and quite quiet and I think what it shows is that the, the nature of the Brown and Doyle partnership covers a lot of different tones albeit most of the time ha- harmonious and melodic because because Doyle is one of the finest melodists in film music as far as I, I'm concerned so yeah like you say it's very pleasant to listen to but yeah may- maybe not a, an attention grabber necessarily no no not not necessarily but let's you know it's, it's one that might brew and might and might emerge a little bit um, with, with a few more listens let's jump back into our breakdown then our top 10 of 2018 we're nearly at the end we've just got our top two to go so let's kick things off i'll kick things off this time and come up with my my number two of the year now this one i suspect we're going to be a bit divided on sean to be honest i think this is the one where you turn around to me and go no i'm not having this don't buy it (laughs) i'm curious now 
<laughs> I've gone for Lorne Balfe's Mission Impossible Fallout. Oh, yeah, you were right, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Told you. Now, I know this because historically, we've, you, I am traditionally more of a fan of the sort of Hans Zimmer school of music than you are. I, I don't think... I, I wouldn't really often listen to it above a John Williams or a Michael Giacchino. Don't get me wrong. But... I do tend to enjoy it a little bit more than you. So, I mean, for a start, I think Fallout is my second favourite film of the year. I loved that film to bits completely. Uh, I've seen it three times now and I I just adore it. But I, And the music surprised me because when I heard that Lorne Balfe was going to do it, I was like, oh, Joe Kramer's score for Rogue Nation was so good. I remember us talking about that a while back. And it was a great... And Giacchino's scores for the past two one, Mission Impossibles before that were, were great. And I was like, oh, Balfe's never really done much for me, you know. And but then I listened to this and it works. Not only does the score work in terms of matching the, the sheer sort of epic action craziness of Fallout and how intense in its own sort of still sort of oddly Tom Cruise camp way it is, works. Yet whenever, whenever I've listened to this outside of, the, of watching the movie, I really enjoy it. I really get a lot. I get a buzz from it. You know, there are certain tracks like Freefall, Freefall is my favourite scene of the year, let alone that that movie, that scene where Henry Cavill gets zapped by lightning halfway into the air and Tom Cruise has to save his life mid-air as they plunge into Paris. Watching that in 4DX was 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 fun, tell, I tell you. But the music is brilliant for that. It just works. It builds and builds and builds so much. So I was I was surprised at how much I really enjoyed the, the sort of bombastic, percussive, very, very Hans Zimmer you know flavor to this i mean the, the, there's an, a track called the exchange which is basically from the dark night <laughs> you can put it next to stuff from the dark night and it's the same thing so yeah i i, I love this i love the film i love the score it's not in your top 10 though is it Sean? <laughs> it, it isn't no i should say i should say outright i don't hate the score for this film in fact i actually quite like some parts of it i, I it's not a complete write-off i've seen a lot of one star reviews it's not a one star score at all it's not it's not as bad as that there are actually some very interesting instrumental flourishes there's a lovely kind of like espionage piano theme that, that un- underscores some of the imf sequences when they're like extracting people or they're meeting up or everything there are little touches like that there's also lovely use of like sort of bongos to connect it back to what lalo Schifrin did with the original series and which other composers in the in the film series have done i'm really divided about it though because i think joe kramer's score for rogue nation as you just said is magnificent that's one of the best action scores of the last 10 years and that that score nailed what what it is that a score for this series ought to sound like which is that no electronics nothing samples nothing sort of filtered or processed just pure raw orchestral power that honors the tone of what Lalo Schifrin did in the original series so you know you think of the instrumental choices like bongo and jazz flutes and the orchestra and everything i think joe kramer got that magnificently well in fact rogue nation was on again the other night and i really admired how well that score was mixed and spotted and how it amplified the tension of it i think the problem with the fallout score as you've rightly said is that I don't really know what led to Joe Kramer not doing this. As I understand it, Christopher McQuarrie, the writer-director, wanted 
to change up the tone a bit. And obviously when a director wants to change up the tone, the composer is very often the one in the firing line because the composer is, is the person who helps cement the director's vision. So if a director wants a new tone, what that means is that one form of music will go out of the window and a new form will come in. And clearly, you know, Fallout is an, is an exceptional film. I think it's a brilliant film and that may, it, it only amplifies my sense of frustration because the film is great. And I just think what it would have sounded like with Joe Kramer doing it. And there is, it, it it's really distracting when you've got a Mission Impossible movie that sounds like a Christopher Nolan movie. I, I, I understand Macquarie's desire to make things sound different. I don't really think he ought to have made it sound that different. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of think you need to stay loyal to the origins of this thing. I mean, clearly, I mean, the Mission Impossible scores have gone through various iterations. I mean, you think of Hans Zimmer's score for the second movie, which was ridiculous. Mm. But <laughs> fitted John Woo's vision for that film in, 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 in its own strange kind of way. So you could say, I mean, Lorne Balfe doesn't really have any charges to answer. He's doing what Christopher McQuarrie wanted him to do. And again, I think there are lots of very, very fine cues in the Fallout score, but I am I'm disappointed that there appears to be that dismissal of of the classic mission impossible sound and there are there were block sequences in fallout where i was like why have they made the score sound like that because i feel like i'm watching a completely different film and i shouldn't be thinking that yeah it's disappointing i mean it's as far as i'm saying it's not a patch on what joe kramer did not 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 a chance in hell because i think that score was a was a masterpiece for Rogue Nation. Very different score for a very, very for a different film anyways. I, th- I think that's the thing. I think Macquarie very much is tapping into Christopher Nolan in what he's doing with Fallout. And I think he wanted a score to really match that really. It's like a cover version almost. And I, th- I think, I mean, I loved Fallout for that. And I suspect he might go in a similar direction for the next two he's doing. We'll see. I mean, I, I completely get where you're coming from though. I, th- I think I think that's, I think a lot of people would agree with you as well. I think... I think it's very much split split a lot of people down the middle and you've got a lot of people, certainly film score fans online, who would much prefer Kramer and his interpretation of this than Balf. So I think I think it's really gonna divide people. I thought earlier you were gonna say, I'm disappointed that it's your number two. <laughs> you could have done so much better. <laughs> Again, I, I, I didn't, I didn't hate the Fallout score. I thought there were a lot, there were lots of bits that did actually work surprisingly well. It's just, it's a significant step down when you consider what what Joe Kramer did for the previous movie. Okay, so what's your what's your number two then? Uh, I think we're going to go for something less electronic in this one. And <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that. I mean, it's it's First Man, which has got its a fair amount of electronics in it. I mean, again, we've we've already addressed First man to an extent as as i said earlier this is a project that the tone of which caught a lot of people off guard because a lot of audiences and film school fans might have been expecting a movie and a score experience that sweeps you into the vastness of the unknown and carries you on the journey of one of the most iconic american figures of all time and and both the movie and the score deliberately don't do that it shies away from sort of obvious iconography and obvious statements and it's a character study first and foremost it's a character study of a very introspective almost quite unknowable figure and indeed Neil Armstrong as as those who've read about the film will know Neil Armstrong has largely stayed out of the public eye since stepping foot on the moon and that is that's the jumping off point for the score it's it's it uses you know there are there are occasional ecstatic moments in it that are all the more powerful 
because of how quiet the rest of the score is. But you've got to dig into the nuances of it and realise what Justin Hurwitz has done with this score. Like the idea of only using synthesizers made prior to 1969. You know, there's real authenticity and skill and thought that's gone into this score. And it works brilliantly in the film in, in terms of evoking like the coldness of space and also almost the coldness of the central character in a, in a lot of ways. It's very, very dramatically astute. And that landing cue at the end, my goodness me, I mean, the, the, you know, if the rest of the score is a challenge to listen to by intention, that, that cue is just absolutely astonishing. It's my favourite piece of film score music of 2018 easily. Yeah, it's, it's a great, as, as I said, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great piece of work, First Man. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we'll be championing that for a long time to come, I think. Okay, so my number one is, we, t- we talked about it before, Black Panther. Ludwig Jorensen, it's just perfect. I can't, I can't talk about it any better than you did. It, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. It is one of my favorite movies of the year. It's probably my third favorite movie, I would say, uh, of the year. Black Panther. Uh, I've seen it a few times. The music is just amazing. Like it, it is, it's so, like you said, it's so well thought out. It's so complicated yet easy to listen to. It's, it taps into. That, that world of Wakanda and, and the characters just brilliantly. Um, it's incredibly listen, listenable outside of the movie as well, um, which is a big thing for me. So yeah, best score of 2018 for me, easily. So love it, love it, love it to bits. Okay, so you're number one then. I think we think we know. I think I know where this is going because we've been teasing this for the last episode and a half. So what what is your best score of 2018, Sean? There can only be one to quote um, Queen, uh, and it was uh, a solo a Star. Bohemian Wars. Rhapsody. <laughs> don't don't get me started on that. Honestly, no, it's a solo a Star Wars story by John Powell, which is was my favourite blockbuster score of 2018, and indeed my favourite score of, of 2018. And I think that. Um, whatever reservations you have about the film, which is that it's fairly mediocre and redundant, the score really picks it up by the scruff of its neck and carries you on this you know, thrilling intergalactic journey by harnessing John Williams's new Han Solo theme and also John Williams, uh, John Powell's you know, incredibly sophisticated use of an orchestra he is capable of writing with such intricacy and such energy i mean we mentioned how to train your dragon scores earlier and you can hear a lot of how to train your dragon in the score for solo just the sheer energy and the fun of it i mean you can tell this was a score composed by someone who had a massive smile on their face throughout it's just it's so big-hearted and so exuberant and it extends right down to you know the tone of of the brass writing is is very it's very harmonious it's very big it's very bold the themes are great you know it's the first star wars score to get a theme for chewbacca which is lovely and lyrical and again that's probably the bit that sounds most like how to train your dragon actually but just the way that it's a, it's a meeting point between john williams and john powell in fact when john williams wrote the hand the, the hand solo theme if anything what john powell does with that theme is more impressive than what john williams did because <laughs> you know just the sheer level of um orchestral complexity that goes with it i mean some of the action sequences are absolutely phenomenal you think of um corellia chase or into the morb i mean i love um i love a score that uses like horn trills like you know when when the horns sound like they're practically like growling and almost like erupting out of the speak you think of elliot goldenthal always used to do that or you think of alexandra desplar in the, in the recent godzilla score and, and any time any time a, a sort of orchestral blockbuster score pushes the brass section to the ragged edge, I, I just love 
that and into the more it's just one of the most astonishing pieces of music of the year and I just this score is just really good fun I, I actually do wonder whether it's whether it's better than the the John Williams Star Wars scores that that have come out um recently the Force Awakens and the Last Jedi I mean certainly it's a lot more <laughs> excuse me unashamed in terms of its sense of heroism it's almost like John Powell thought this is the only Star Wars score I'm going to do I'm going to go absolutely hell for leather and just make this as fun as I can. Whereas obviously John Williams has lived with this franchise for a lot longer. And maybe one could say that maybe there is more of a jaded sense in that. Although that though, personally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that, but I can understand why people would, would say it, but you can just, you, you get a sense of how much John Powell is loving being let loose in the star Wars sandbox in this. It's just, it's great. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's really good. I, I think Lando's closet is the one that, I I've, I come I come back to it again and again. I think that's a beautiful piece as well. It, it, it's just it's just really good. I, I didn't love the movie. I was I was fairly lukewarm on the film itself. I think I think it was all right. It was fun enough in places, but yeah, the score is is terrific. I think it, it's it's Powell really at the top of his game. I completely get why that would be your number one. hundred percent. This is this is the sort of orchestral score that I like. I, I love that, that that uses themes that uses the power of the symphony to its fullest extent. Um, that honours it honours the legacy of what what's come before. Interesting that you know it makes an interesting companion piece with what I was saying to Fallout. You know, if I was saying that the problem with the Fallout score is that it, it doesn't it doesn't toe the line in terms of like the legacy of the Mission Impossible scores earlier. Or not, not, not entirely successfully. The, the solo score does that magnificently well. Great choice, great choice for your number one. So yeah, we've we've unpicked ten across these two episodes, ten scores um, that you should definitely be going out and listening to, guys. If you haven't already, I bet you have most of you really, because there's some fantastic stuff to go and explore. So yeah, that's our uh, that's our top ten of 2018. Okay, welcome back. That was The Children of Our Age from uh, Nicholas Brittell's score to Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk, um, set in the 1970s, uh, and it explores a, a love affair in the on the streets of Harlem, and uh, it's a film which has been uh, getting quite a lot of critical buzz, um, several Oscar nominations. This is, the, this, is, this is a really interesting score. I mean, it's the second score of the year from Brittell of, of, uh, so far. Already, he, 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 there was Vice, um, Adam McKay's Vice, which Brittell did. Very different kind of score. This, I think, Sean, is more in the vein of Jenkins' last film, isn't it? Moonlight, which Brittell also scored. Yeah, I, I love the score for this film. It's interesting. I know we talked about Moonlight on the previous iteration of this podcast, and I wasn't a particular fan of that score. I thought it was you know more textural and ambient whereas 
I love the, the the sort of elegiac, romantic, ever so slightly despairing tone of If Bill Street. I found very arresting and very beautiful to listen to, and also the fact there are at least three or four clearly identifiable themes in this score. Um, you've got the overarching Harlem theme. You've got the the love theme, the Eros love theme for the two central characters played by Stefan James and Kiki Lane. You've also got the lovely quasi taxi driver, slightly sort of dirty jazz, which plays into the the the, the rape um, allegation at the centre of the story, which has sent the character of Fonny to jail. And that that kind of that kind of feels a, a, a sort of edgier and plays into the sort of racial prejudice that the two central characters are actually facing i thought i thought nicholas Brittel did a brilliant job with with this and the film is really powerful as well the film it's not so much a film that you watch as luxuriating I, have you seen it mm. no not yet, it, not yet. It, it's a really powerful experience because the there, there is there is a degree of formality to the visual composition that there is there's a kind of beautiful kind of composed air to the visuals and this kind of surging you know all-encompassing score from Nicholas Brattel kind of sweeps over you throughout the course of the movie both in its sort of more romantic moments and in its darker moments as well so it really it really is a feast for the senses and the music sort of tells you about what the two central characters are are going through because it's it's a poetic story it's a romantic story it's also a very hard-hitting story it's based on the james baldwin novel which i i read just recently i got i got it for christmas and the book is brilliant and jenkins and Brattel have done a fantastic job of honoring the spirit of of what that what that is about I, I i much preferred their collaboration on this to their collaboration on moonlight yeah i i really i really liked certain pieces from moonlight but i get what you mean i think this is probably a, a stronger score i think yeah definitely because i think it, it's there's more to it there's more stuff that as you say luxuriating there are those sort of deeper strains of that sort of his sort of classic um soul throughout this as well really sort of there the, a lot of lot of trumpet a lot of that that kind of stuff that really sort of built so it gives you that sense of the world that you're in really sort of immerses you in that a little bit more than moonlight did maybe maybe on, on purpose because moonlight you had it was about a character who didn't really know who he was that that's, so, that's know, true yeah that that's that's you know, that's a really interesting point yeah yeah it could have been a reflection of that really whereas this is a very different kind of texture and story so I, I really can't wait to see the film I've heard great things about it. Jenkins is, is great to listen to in interviews about it because he really talks about it in a, in a really intelligent and interesting way so I, I'm 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 excited I'm excited to see it really really nice score there, there are the instrumental choices in it as well like there the Harlem theme uses what sounds like a clarinet and and there are like these clarinets which sounds like they sound like they've been sort of processed in or interpreted in some way which kind of you know, it makes me reminds me a bit like of George Gershwin, and you think of the opening sequence of of Man of Woody Allen's Manhattan, and there there was just certain little instrumental touches that made me think, oh, this this sounds like a sort of a New York score. It might seem like a bit of a weird thing to say, but there are certain instrumental choices that made me think that. I think it almost sounds like Gershwin filtered through a, a distant memory, like a hazy memory or, or something. But yeah, I thought this was a really fine score. Loved it. If Bill Street could talk, available now from uh, Lakeshore Records. Mm-hmm. 
All right, then, let's do a little bit of a wrap-up. There's another score that, that's out this month that uh, you particularly want to talk about, Sean. So, yeah, The Kid Who Would Be King by Electric Wave Bureau, I believe, which is uh, uh, <laughs> something that I've never come across them. Um, and this is the new Joe Cornish uh, version of the Arthurian myth that um, has been a bit of a box office flop in the US so far, but we'll, it, hopefully it might do a little bit better in the UK um, as, cause it, as it comes out uh, this week as we record. Um, so by the time you listen to this, it's probably out already. But yeah, this this I, I listened to this last night. So it's a pretty good score, actually. It's, uh, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I, I really liked it. I mean, Electric Wave Bureau are not... It's not a collective that I'm familiar with. It's a musician's collective spearheaded by Damon Albarn. Um, they've only done one film score, to my knowledge, previously, which was a British film called Broken. So I had no expectations for this. I, I saw the film because I, I spoke to Joe Cornish. So obviously when you do an interview, you have to see the film in, in advance. So I've already seen it. And I, I really enjoyed the film. And the score actually stood out to me as one of its finest aspects. It plays into the notions of like chivalry and heroism. And it's... I imagine it was probably scored with Daft Punk's Tron Legacy because there is that kind of meeting point between electronics and orchestra, uh, albeit not wrought as successfully as that because I think that Daft Punk score for that film is astonishing. But it's 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 really really good, and there there are, there are clearly defined themes in it. There there is the the overarching Arthurian theme. There is the theme for Merlin. I think well any any modern day adventure film score that is composed in terms of themes rather than just sort of free floating noise is, is doing a, a good job as far as I'm concerned. So I, I really, really like that. And in fact, I, I spoke to Joe Cornish about the score and he said that he, he is a fan of themes. He likes clear building blocks in his music and it's, it's very, very important. And he said, that's why I choose pop artists to write. So I chose a pop artist to write the score for this and also for his previous film, Attack the Block, because they've got an, an instinctive understanding of rhythm and that translates very well into a cinematic soundscape. And I think he's absolutely right. I think the score for this film really, really caught me by surprise. I love the the electronic orchestral mix of it. I like the I like the themes. I think it's done with a lot of heart. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Really pleasant surprise. I, I, I liked it. Yeah, I I I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I thought it, I thought it was good. I th- I think uh, I I really enjoyed Arthur's theme definitely which is on the, the the album twice so yeah it's 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 good it builds nicely it's got some really nice themes in it it's uh it's sort of a, an interesting mix of of traditional sort of orchestral music and with a little bit of electronic stuff in there it's it's, it's good uh, yeah it's a good it's a good one um so that's one to look out for this month i was just going to say in the wrap up uh, we're um about two weeks out from the oscars right now and by the time we come back for a new episode we probably will be after the oscars so who do we think sean who do you think is going to get it i mean that's who have we got who's nominated so we've got black panther which is ludwig joranson we've got black klansman uh terrace blanchard if bill street could talk which we just talked about by nicholas britell isla dogs by Alexandre Desplat and uh, Mark Shaman's Mary Poppins Returns. Who is walking away with that gong, Sean? Who do you think? Oh, it's, it's see, I, I, I disparaged the Oscars in in the previous episode on the basis of this category, but actually that's a very very strong category this year, and they've um, lovely to see the likes of Terence Blanchard for Black Klansman being nominated. In fact, obviously Spike Lee got his first director nomination this year, so this year's Oscars have actually done a, a pretty good job, I think, on on reflection, identifying who's going to win out of that is very very difficult i think i personally think ludwig Göransson has, has got a very very good chance of that 
I would say it's pro- it's not going to be Desplat because he's won twice in, in very recently as well. Obviously, Grand Budapest Hotel and Shape of Water. I, I don't think I don't think he's going to get it. I my money would be on either Ludwig Göransson or Terence Blanchard. I'd say Göransson's probably going to get that. I mean, I mean, how historic would that be? A superhero movie winning the original score Oscar for the very first time because not even John Williams got that for Superman, and yeah. that would be phenomenal and I think that that might be the Academy one of the ways in which the Academy would honour how historic a movie Black Panther was that the fact that it you know it got into the pop culture conversation and it would be lovely if they actually understood how important the music is in that conversation yeah because I mean I I think there's slim chance it's going to win best picture you know I I think I think it's one of those things where you know they talked about that ridiculous popular Oscars yeah, which they promptly got rid of. Yeah, deservedly so. Because everyone went, don't be ridiculous. But that, you know, because I think they would have definitely given it to Black Panther in that category if they could have done. They would have given, they would have, that Best Picture nomination would have gone elsewhere. But I think it it probably won't win Best Picture. So I think, I think, I think you're right. I think Goranson's going to get this. And I, I want him to, to be honest. I mean, much as that is a strong field and particularly Isla Dogs and Mary Poppins Returns, I wouldn't begrudge winning. Don't get me wrong. I, I think if Goranson doesn't get this, it's a, it's a real it's a real crime because there there is there is a com, there is a complexity and brilliance to that Black Panther score that you don't see very often. Yeah. So I I really really hope that it takes it away. And like you, I think I think he will. I think I think it's I think that's, I think that's the one he's going to win. So it's the, everyone heard it here. We're, we're putting our money on <laughs> on Black Panther. We'll revisit this when we come back in a, in, a, in a few weeks and see if we were right, definitely. We should be putting bets on. So, yeah, so that's it for another episode of um, Between the Notes. We're going to finish, however, with um, another recent re-release from Varese Saraband Records. It's a, a limited edition version of Jerry Goldsmith's L.A. Confidential. Um, we're going to play you out with some of that. You're, well, we're both massive Goldsmith fans, aren't we? And we'll, we'll, we'll do more about Big Jerry on this podcast big jerry as i'm not <laughs> on this podcast very soon i think big jerry um, my my favorite my favorite film composer yeah. of all time is your favorite are you a fan of this one la, LA confidential yeah, great film obviously by curtis hansen but um the score doesn't always maybe get like recognized does no because i mean the score is quite threadbare in the movie the movie's two and a half minutes well nearly two and a half hours long and there's only 30 minutes of score in it but what it proves is that less is more that you you, you don't need wall-to-wall music what you need are very impactful very carefully spotted sections of music which goldsmith was magnificent at, as he was indeed magnificent at everything and you've got that sense of toiling jazzy atmosphere and also that brutal sort of percussive violence inherent in you know it reflects the violence inherent in the story yeah i mean it, it, it was his final no no it wasn't his final oscar nominated score i think that was mulan it was one it was his one of his final oscar nominated scores I, I think it's one that needs close attention because it's not one of his more audience pleasing ones but i think it's terrific nonetheless so we're going to play you out with uh, a piece from um Varese saraband's really sort of limited edition black vinyl release of uh, of Jerry Goldsmith's LA Confidential, um, which is now available to purchase. And um, thanks for listening once again, and we'll see you next time um, for more Between the Notes.
Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at Seano22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.